This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 4th, 2018. I am Patrick Moran. Hope you all enjoyed your Labor Day yesterday. I got stuck working all day, so I did not. Anyway, today is not just another episode of the Moranalytics podcast. For today is actually one of those special milestone episodes for me. This show marks the 50th since I launched this baby in mid-February. So obviously, I'm pretty pumped about that. I'm also pretty pumped to have had some of the guests I've been able to have on this podcast over the first 50 episodes. A list that's included the likes of Adam Schefter, Richard Deitch, Josina Anderson, Tyler Dunn, Ross Tucker, Adam Kaplan, among others nationally. I've had Tim Graham, Mike Harrington, Joe Biscaglia, Howard Simon, Jeremy White, and Sal Capaccio, among many others on the local Buffalo media side. I've also been lucky to have some amazing former athletes on the show. Guys like former NBA point guard legends Kenny Anderson and Rod Strickland. Former NFL 100 career sack guy Kevin Carter, who, by the way, is the smartest football player that I've ever talked to. I've also had a couple former Buffalo Bills stars on. Guys like Don Beebe, Marlon Kerner, and the just recently retired Eric Wood. So, man, I'm blessed for all that. It's been a lot of fun. And here's the best news. This party ain't stopping anytime soon either. Trust me on that. In fact, today, I'm celebrating a cool 50 shows by having on another guest I've wanted to have on this show for a long time. Whether you love them or whether you loathe them, and I know firsthand from reading comments and knowing through the years, there's plenty of both. He's one of the most polarizing Buffalo sports media figures of all time. And I literally mean that all time. Jerry Sullivan is my guest on today's show. And I promise you, it's the most fiery interview I've had yet on this podcast. Sully goes all in on everything that happened in the Buffalo News. If he thinks that the Pagoulas had any influence over his column being yanked, why the BN Blitz has miserably failed, those are his words anyway. What he thinks about a lot of his fellow sports media colleagues. We talk some Buffalo Bills and just a whole lot more. Now, the audio in this interview at times isn't always gold standard because Sully, frankly, had a couple issues with his speaker a couple times when he was talking here and there. 
but I promise you the content is gold. This is a great interview. If you're a Buffalo sports fan, if you're a media sports fan, this is truly must listen. Immediately after that, I have some Pat with Pucks. Tone Pucks and I are talking about the Buffalo Bills. Now that the preseason's over, cuts have been made, as well as the A.J. McCarron trade that went down with the Raiders over the weekend. We talk about the current roster, what we think of Nate Peterman as the starter. We discuss in detail a few different positions. And then we both offer a series of Buffalo Bills-related predictions. And of course, a Super Bowl prediction from each of us. Because why the hell not? Let's overreact and sound silly in September. It's a fun segment, although I personally feel like some Buffalo Bills fans are going to be kind of pissed off at me when they hear it. But whatever, it is what it is. Anyway, here we go. Here's my interview with an always candid Jerry Sullivan, followed by some Pat with Pucks. All right, my guest today has been one of the most polarizing figures in the Buffalo sports media for many years. Whether you loved him or whether you hated him, and there's been plenty of both, his columns were often appointment reading. After nearly 30 years at the Buffalo News, he was one of several who accepted a buyout a couple months ago, but now he's back teaming up with his colleague and buddy, Bucky Gleason, to write for Buffalo Maven and also host a weekday morning radio show on 1270 The Fan. Of course, I'm talking about Jerry Sullivan. What's up, Sully? How you doing? I'm pretty good. Uh, I will uh, point out that uh, they took my column away. Uh, that's the reason I took the buyout. So I, I, sometimes I think there's some confusion. Buffalo Spree named me best columnist and said I was shown the door. I'd like to clear that up that I chose to leave after they chose to take both of our columns away. So uh, I'll be contentious right from the start because I wouldn't want to be any other way. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not going to lie, man. I do have you know, a handful of Buffalo news questions that I wanted to ask. And I'll get to those in a second. But first, I, I want to say this. Through your career, you know, probably more than anyone I've ever seen in the Buffalo media, fans have had a, a really strong feeling towards you. Either they love your honesty in your work or, you know, they've hated you for being so honest in your work. Mm-hmm. Have you always felt that type of love and wrath at the same time from fans? I think more so in recent years. And uh, I'd like to think that some of the people, I don't know if it was hatred and there's definitely a spectrum here. And I think the Buffalo news really played toward the the low common denominator, but I think a strong opinion among fans sometimes, you know, it's like telling people when their kid is screwing up um, that I think they kept reading me. I I think I I had a lot of reaction when I left the news from people. So I didn't always agree with you, but I, I had to read you. I'd like to think that, uh, People felt I was it was important read, even if sometimes it was difficult to hear. You know, was I a little toward the edge, a little sarcastic at times? Sure, I wrote with humor. I could also bring people to tears. Bucky and I both also wrote many features over the years. I mean, if you want to go back, you know, 25 years or 15 years to columns I wrote about high schools and college and really positive features I wrote about many bills in the Super Bowl eras. There's a, a wide spectrum of my work, and sometimes I get a little resentful when it's just boiled down to you know he was negative and i did i i did cover the bills for the last 17 years during which they had the longest uh exactly paralleled their playoff drought which was the longest in professional sports when when it uh ended so there is that right well i'm gonna tell you what and this is probably the best compliment i've ever heard about you is i remember 
back in 2010, I had interviewed Daryl Talley for a blog that I had started. And I'll never forget this. When I asked him, you know, I was going through all the spiel, all, all the questions, and I asked him who the biggest influences were in his career. And I expected him to say, you know, a couple of linebackers that came before him, maybe a, a coach or something from college. But he said you. And he said, <laughs> he did. He said that you ripped him in a few columns early in his career. And that because of that, it really ignited a fire under his ass to become a better player, which of course he did. I mean, he said that you meant a lot to his career and that because of that, you know, he respected the shit out of you for it. What does it mean to hear something like that from somebody like Daryl Talley? And I'm pretty sure through the years as his career went on and especially after, you know, you've went on to have a good relationship with him. Uh, it meant the world to me. And, you know, his wife, Janine, is a, a great person, too. And he he reiterated those statements when I left the column and left the news. He was right there you know, defending me and taking that point of view. And it means, it means the world because he was my favorite bill and not just because of what he thought of me, that I thought he represented Buffalo and the ethos of the town, the warrior. He played every game. He played hurt. He was so passionate. And and yet he would still get on Twitter and rip the bills later on during that drought for mistakes they were making. So I felt he was kind of like my type of guy and that people could love him, but sometimes they didn't want to hear what he had to say. But I think he was real. And I, I, I'm proud of the fact that a guy I consider maybe the most real Bill ever got me and appreciated me and felt I helped him. Uh, Cornelius Bennett once looked up at me after an AFC title game with the national media around. We'd have fights. He'd threaten me. And he said, this this guy made me better. And I'm, that's not my goal as a writer. But, but you know, it, it, it you can't help but feel good sometimes when, when guys understand the relationship between a writer and them. And that sometimes in a culture where they get their ass kicked from the time they're 10 years old, that maybe a little bit of that helps. And it doesn't always come from the coach. Lindy Ruff said sometimes to me, he said, you know, I love it when you rip them, you and Bucky, because they need to hear it from somebody else. You know, if some troll on Twitter doesn't get that relationship, well, I'm sorry. Maybe maybe it's uh, this is an old, old guy mentality. And sometimes I do think it's the older guys that get it. And they were more real. Thurman Thomas and I didn't speak for a year and a half. And now we're friends. I guess I can be friends when they're retired. <laughs> he was one of the toughest guys I ever I ever saw play football. Same with Jim Kelly. He and I still don't have a great relationship, but he he understood me. And so I don't know. And it's a long winded answer, and just saying that I I the thing with Daryl means a, a lot to me. And I love the fact that his wife is a brilliant brilliant woman. And She's has great for the news. Now Daryl was a go to guy whenever it was time to write about the death of a Kent Hall, or Looking back at the at the, I did a, a complete special section looking back on the comeback game, on the first Super Bowl loss. Talked to all the Bills. These were really treasured things that I that I really you know loved doing, and I think were appreciated. They weren't negative. They were capturing the history. Daryl, the night Ken Hull died, couldn't even speak to me on the phone. He was crying. He said, "I have to talk to you tomorrow." But I knew I had to talk to Daryl the next day. He was a key point of the story about Kent Hull and how much he loved Kent Hull. And I was so honored that I was able to write that column. I had the perspective of having been through it, knowing those guys. And I think that's going to be missed. You look at the Buffalo News now and you get stories on the front page by people that are just out of college. I mean, good. I'm glad they have jobs. But I think the good Bills fans and readers of newspapers or whatever they're going to read they need and, and want a perspective from someone that was there 25 years ago. So again, I'm long winded and that's what you get from me, but 
Daryl to me is really a symbol of a lot. And I'm, and I'm really happy you went right to him and show a lot of insight by, by picking on that. Let's, I'll tell you what, let's talk about the Buffalo news for a couple of minutes, because then I want to talk about some general sports media stuff, uh, what you're doing now. And of course, a little bit of Buffalo bills talk, but let's get the Buffalo news stuff out of the way. I know a lot of people are going to want to hear your insight and your takes on a couple of things. So let's get that out of the way right now. And so there's no more speculation in your words. What was that last straw that broke the camel's back that made you decide that, you know what, I'm accepting this buyout offer from the Buffalo news and I'm leaving after nearly three decades. What was the, what was the final straw for you? It's not that complicated. They took my column away, Pat. I mean, that's who I am. I mean, it took me a day and Bucky Gleason and I initially were going to stay. We'll be, you know, we are actually, they say, don't make a decision when you're emotional. We were actually emotionally making the wrong decision. I figured, hey, I can write features, and I, I want to just keep taking their money. I mean, it's a paycheck, believe me. And Bucky was thinking, just very briefly, of covering the hockey team for them. But then we came to our senses, and that night when he told me he was leaving, my wife heard it, and she, when I said I'm leaving, she was so relieved because she said, how could you stay there? They've emasculated you. And that's all. You take a column. When I was... In, in college, 40 years ago, we all wanted to be columnists. I guess some guys still wanted to be that way, guys and women. And and that's who I was. I mean, I don't want to be totally defined as a sports columnist, but that was my identity as a journalist. And I, and it would have been it would have been really embarrassing and demeaning to my self image and worth to continue to work after they'd taken away. I mean, that picture in the paper. It's not always really me. A columnist sometimes takes extreme positions. Even and you do this on the radio too. You you kind of an exaggerated version of yourself. But that public version of Jerry Sullivan, I built for thirty years, and they took that away, and I did not retire. I will decide when I retire. Right. But that's it. I mean, the column is is precious, and they decided, and then they have since told their writers they don't want that type of column anymore. Don't kid yourself. They don't want that type of opinion that Bucky and I provided. They took it away from both of us within a twenty minute period in late May. And I think that was an insult to the true readers and sports fans of Buffalo because they were telling them, you can't handle it. You need something softer. You need a fan site like our Buffalo Blitz, which was a miserable failure. I wrote and will continue to write for the smart, literate fans who understand what an objective columnist is supposed to be. Now, you're going to be preaching in the choir here because I think a newspaper without true columnists is absolutely absurd. But from the, what do you think that they're thinking from the, their side, or maybe whether it's the Buffalo News or maybe other newspapers around the country that are probably doing some of this now, you know, that why would they want to do away with pure columnists? I mean, here's my take on it. And again, I'm not just pandering because I have you on the show, but game recaps and all that stuff, more times than not, I've watched the game. I would go searching for your column on Monday morning because I wanted insight and perspective and opinion on the game. I already watched the game. I already know that. You know, Drew Bledsoe drew for 280 hours and two touchdowns or whatever have you, and they won or they lost. Well, what do you think that the newspaper's mindset is right now to want to do away with columnists, whether it's the Buffalo News or other ones around the country? I, I, I really, it puzzles me. I will tell you what I know is that the Buffalo Blitz, uh, the, the news started a Buffalo Blitz. Mike Conley said they'd, they'd sell 100,000. He brought in Josh Barnett to help do that rather than hire Keith McShay, a local a guy who worked at that paper and knew the landscape and knew the guys in the paper. And it, it did nothing. It, it, three, I haven't heard any figures. They sold like 3000. They needed to blame somebody. And that that's a, that's a specific example in Buffalo. 
Barnett told me that they had about 200 people in a, in a survey that said they wouldn't buy it because of me and Bucky. So they got what they wanted there. They got that small demographic, that low common denominator to confirm what they wanted to believe so they could get rid of us. But that, does, that doesn't make sense, though. It still doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And I don't know why other newspapers are getting rid of columnists either around the country except to save money. And, and one of the reasons it's confusing to me is because you look at TV. I, you know, I watch the, the news shows more than the sports shows. And in both cases, it's about commentary and, and faces and personality. I was told that the Buffalo News leadership didn't want personalities. Then That's why they didn't want columns. And they must have some idea what's going to save newspapers. But newspapers are dying, and I think they're desperate. And in the case of the Blitz, it's clear that they decided they were going to throw all their eggs into a, a fan football site, which was, which was really disappointing to me. I'm a traditional newspaper man. I don't like sports on the front page. I covered news for five years in Binghamton. I wanted to be a news columnist and went back into sports writing. But I have an idea about about newspapers that's that's dying and it crushes me. And they're just flying around with, you know, like chickens with their heads cut heads cut off and don't know how to make that product work online. And I, it's really saddens me. I mean, the thing that, and, you know, you love newspapers. I love newspapers. I talk to older people my age who love newspapers that, that something is dying and it's, and it's really sad, but I don't understand. You could even go to the athletic though. I mean, that's the new cutting edge. They don't have columnists. They've determined that people don't want that. So maybe they don't, maybe I don't understand. Maybe I'm just an old guy who doesn't understand the younger demographic and what they want. A lot of times people, you know, just like TV shows and then years, what after, you know, many years later, you find out that, you know, and behind the scenes, like on a knee network special or something, that the happy cast that you saw on TV wasn't really happy and they weren't always all fond of each other. How unhappy were the majority of the guys who worked with that you worked with at the sports department? And how long was it like that before some of you guys finally said, you know what, that's enough. We're out. Uh, there are varying degrees of discontent. I know in in one case, to Cesare, he saw what was going on with me and Bucky, and he just couldn't, he couldn't, in good conscience, I think, continue to to work there. Um, I don't, I don't, I think a lot of them saw that things were failing, and that what they did with me and Bucky was a bad sign, and they they didn't want to want to hang around for that that uh, man management. It, there were people who just never bought into the Josh Barnett hire and didn't really weren't crazy about him. There are people who didn't like, there are different layers of discontent, but you know, on the whole, it's like when you see your two columnists have their columns taken away and you're a traditional journalist and you're friends, I mean, it doesn't send a good message to you. Um, and then the athletic comes along, I guess, well, the buyout, I, I know Vogel took the buyout and he was not happy with what was going on there, I'm sure. And then he was going to just take some time off and then the athletic came along and hired him, which was good. So, um, and bad for the news, I guess, because they've got more competition than ever now, including, you know, Bucky and I with the Buffalo Mavens. It's pretty obvious from Twitter over the past couple of months that there's no real love loss between Tim Graham and Mike Harrington or John Vogel and Mike, for that matter. I'm not going to ask so much for your comment on each of them, but were you a little bit surprised to see that kind of drag out and play out publicly? Because I mean, Tim and Mike were, especially on Tim's end, they were going at it very publicly. And this was not long after Tim had left the news and joined the athletic. No, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I'm friends with them. I'm friends with them both. And it saddened me to see that relationship. Me too. And there was also, you know, Tim Graham, you know, he comes hard and he, 
he's criticized Vic Carucci while he's working at the paper, which I found disappointing. But it is also competition, people competing for positions and place in the business. And at my age, I guess I didn't feel a need to compete with, you know, the guys that I work with. I tried to get along with everybody, but I, I wish it wasn't happening. But now that they're com- competitors, it's it's going to be ugly. And that's just the way it is. I mean, I you see what goes on with competition and other media. They come at each other hard. I worked in New York when a guy named Peter Vesey used to just crush the other writers. It was pretty funny. Uh, I, I don't know. Now that I'm in competing media, I, I guess they'll come after me too. So see, see what happens. But I don't, I don't really have the stomach for, for going after other people and who are struggling in the same business as me. Sure. Now there was a rumor going around. I don't think it had much legs, but it was a rumor that the Bagulas made a play you know, some kind of role in having a column of yours or Bucky's pulled or anything like that. Do you think that they had any influence at all in the sports department and the way things were done or anything like that for that matter? The Pagulas with the Buffalo News. Yes. You use the word influence, which is an interesting word. I mean, this has obviously been discussed. The public wrote about it. Um, their influence is vast and exaggerated in Buffalo. I sometimes think Buffalo should be, shouldn't be such a small time place to think the Pagulas saved them. But when they have business right next door to you, right across the street, when they have a lot of money, they get a hotel and they own both teams. If you don't think they have influence on the people in the media, you're just kidding yourself. If you want a specific story, this has been written. They look, the, the, the Pagulas uh, had, a, I believe, a quarter million dollar, um, what do you call it, an account with the programs for the Sabres, with the news. The news does a lot of printing there, obviously. That's how they make a lot of their money now. And they pulled it and it was pretty well established that I and maybe Bucky are in general negative perceived negative reporting was the reason. And in fact, there was a, a meeting with higher ups in an auditorium where they joked about me costing them a quarter of a million dollars. So there's a fact that critical journalism has cost them money with the Pagulas. So back to the whole idea of influence, what I've been saying is whether it was overt or not, Getting us out of me and Bucky out of there would play well with the Pagulas and and their power in the eyes of the Buffalo News. That's what I believe. I'm not sure. Did they ever meet? Did I think Kim Pagula ever sat down and talked to Warren Colville? I would be shocked if they never did. And I mean, I can go back to when uh, Terry Pagula got up down there in a big uh, public meeting before they did the whole project down there, you know, with the whatever you call it, their hockey venture and, and, uh, you know, he made a joke about Brown and Black with Ted Black and Byron Brown. And I wrote about it and talked about how stupid he was. And the next thing you know, there was a campaign full page ad denouncing the news in on the back of business first. They were originally going to use me, my name. They took my name out of this. So there is a history there of me being perceived as bad for business in, in Buffalo uh, with some of my commenting. So and it, it involves the Pagula. So, Pagulas. So when the Buffalo News pretty kind of tells me that uh, I was bad for business with their blitz model, I kind of it makes does make me suspicious. And again, did they have to sit down and say anything? No. But the Buffalo News clearly made a decision, and the influence of the most powerful people in town, the well and the teams that I wrote it right about, uh, it's either an understood. Influence or either an active one, I don't know. That's kind of a long-winded answer, isn't it? 
It is, but I like long-winded answers. That's what this podcast good, good. is about. That's this right. podcast hey. is a series of long-winded answers. Well, let me let's just I'll lump onto that because I'm in a bad mood. Not really, but Bucky and I, you know, on September 4th, <laughs> are starting our five days a week radio show, three hours a day on 1270 AM. And we have the Maven, which has been ready to go for a month, and we launched it last week. We still have been denied credentials by the Bills, okay? You could ask the same question there, right? That's crazy. How much the Pagoulas had any influence in that, or was it just the PR people making this kind of a colossal decision about how we can do our jobs and continue to make money? You can draw your own conclusions. I don't know. That's crazy. Now, you're an old-school newspaper guy, a print newspaper guy. Do you think in your lifetime that print newspapers are going to be completely gone and that we're going to live in a world where it's ex- everything's exclusively online? Do you think that's going to happen in your lifetime? Uh, I think the daily newspapers um, of the, the midsize will, will die. I don't know if the actual print paper will disappear altogether. But I could certainly see that. My lifetime, though, is not that much longer, I guess. Um, the, the thing is, the New York Times and the Washington Post are, are doing well. And they still sell the print copy, though they really, I think they're really pushing the online. So I could see it all going wet, but I also see weekly newspapers continue to do well. The, the kind of the local that write about local, real local stuff, high school stuff, like the like the B. Those things are still precious. When I look at those and see the the guys that are doing the writing in those things uh, and covering high schools, I, it really warms my heart because that that's how I started. And while mid-sized papers like the news, they, we still cover high schools, but we're not doing as much as, as we could. And I think people that want to read about what's going on right around them and around their kids' sports, I think will continue to to read those weeklies. And I know Warren Buffett owns the news, what about 30 of them a few years ago, because he thinks weeklies are going to be the way to go. Mid-sized papers that try to be everything to everybody like the Buffalo News are obviously in big trouble and I don't see them being around long-term. Whatever happened to the cover it live chats that you used to do online with the Buffalo news. That was like literally one of my favorite things about the news online. And I used to consider those chats like appointment reading. You'd go back and forth. People would ask you questions and instantly oh, you yeah, know, and you'd I, respond right to them. What, what happened to that? Why did that stop? They didn't think enough people paid attention to it. That's a pretty simple answer. I used to go for two hours. It was kind of a joke about how long I would go. And I had, I had a ball with it because I love type. I could type fast and I would, I would go with people. And I, if you re, reread it, it could be fun reading, but they just didn't think it was worth the time and the effort and not, not enough people read it. And then they started, then they really started to push for the, our TV and radio ventures. Soon, I think soon that was about the time Bucky and I did BBZ TV. And then that was spun off into our TV show on Channel 2, which is gone, obviously. And then they put us on radio. So that, they just didn't think it, it worked. <clears throat> the numbers said not enough people uh, were, were on there participating. It was great for the 500 people. Sometimes there'd be eight people. So it just wasn't as good as it was. It wasn't attracting that, that many people. Thanks for, being, thanks for being there, though. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I loved it. And my buddy Joe was like always on there every single week. And you, you know what? You were right. Sometimes it was more fun to read it afterwards. Like if I didn't, if yeah. I had something going on and I wasn't there, I'd like reading the script afterwards. <laughs> some inter- people said some entertaining shit on there to you. It was, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Was I'm fun. like, 
where I'm like, where the standards go? I mean, this the newspaper used to be eight people had to read it and approve it. You're worried about slander, and now it's like these things could go on and on and on, and there's nobody editing it. It's it's crazy uh, how standards have fallen in this business uh, in general. But yeah. uh, that's that's the way it is. That's again, it is a business, and when they decided that it was too much. If they didn't want to pay for as many editors, they started cutting editors. And whatever you thought about what was important in the past in journalism and newspapers, it just changed. Poorly edited paper never kill anyone, un- un- unlike a bad automobile. <laughs> now, I've had a lot of Buffalo sports media guys on this podcast. Some of them have been on since you left the news. Uh, Mike Rodak, Matt Fairborn. Joe B. Those oh, yeah. are a couple just off the top of my head. Oh, all, all buddies of mine. Yeah, I, that's I what I was going to say. Guys. To a man. They spoke glowingly of you, and they were straight up pissed off when they learned what happened at the news and such. And, you know, the perception, again, with some fans is that Jerry Sullivan's a mean dude. But the reality, the, the, the picture that all you these media guys paint is that you're actually one of the nicest guys around. Are you mad well, at somebody? Don't go, don't go spreading that. They That's what I was going to say. Are face. you mad at these guys for coming on the podcast? I mean, what the heck going? is that? Yeah, I'm the same person. I'm the same irascible jerk in person as i am in real life but i am a good friend you know i I'm, I'm sort of a global jerk individually as i always told my children you know your relationship one-on-one with people is what really matters I, and I, seriously i value all those guys as friends the young guys i said one of the reasons i i missed covering the bills and didn't want to stop is being around those guys kept me young we golf together we drink together we do fantasy together and i would think hey i'm 25 years old you know Right, and then they, but then they start. Uh, Skirsky nicknamed me Uncle Jerry. <laughs> Jay's in his mid thirties. He's like one of the middle aged guys. But uh, yeah, that was a that was so much fun being around those guys for me, and that's why it it sucks being stonewalled by the Bills, getting back into that press room. And because uh, I guess after some of the questions I've asked in there over the years, maybe they wouldn't want me in there. But uh, I miss me. <laughs> well, you talk about forming, you know, a good bond with a lot of your Bills media travel mates through the years, you know, and, not, and like you said, not just Buffalo News guys, you know, guys, like you said, like Rodak and, and Fairborn, a lot of these other guys, Joe B, that, that they really high live you. What was life like on the road? Was it something that you enjoyed doing when you were covering the Bills going on the road? Or would you have preferred to have 16 home games every year so you didn't have to travel? Oh, the road was always fun. They don't drink the way we did in the old days. but. I was older too. So we'd, we'd play golf. Then we'd end up on the town in Charlotte or Atlanta or something. And sometimes uncle Jerry might, might run out a little steam a little quickly, but uh, (laughs) these guys aren't as, they're not as nuts as we were in the old, uh, in the old days. uh, You gotta, you gotta play hurt. I don't know if you ever read that. It was a Dan Jenkins novel about being a sports writer's classic, but uh, anyway, yeah, that it's the eight games on the road are always fun. You know, I don't, envy these guys that are on the road a hundred days a year. And I never was, but those, those weekends, they went quick. You know, I remember last year standing in Kansas city, standing in line, you know, for one of those famous rib joints, uh, barbecue joints, we'd always go there. There'd always be little traditions that, that you have or Bucky and me running up a $212 bill at the bar in New York. I mean, they're fun times, you know, and then the game Sunday morning, I really miss that game day is still to me, the greatest thing because I still get up for it. I still love a I still love a game, a contest. I mean, I love Stratomatic baseball. I go to a Canisius High College basketball game, and I always look up at the lights and focus on the lights and kind of concentrate and feel like I'm there. I'm in the middle of the action. It's a college game. Who cares? And that's why I love being a sports writer. And 
is I've always said is if, if you look up at the lights and you feel like you want to go home and watch the news, maybe it's time to get out of it, but that time hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. Good. Did you enjoy doing the Bucky and Sully show on the TV side? Well, you know, it's obviously it's something far different than sports writing, or did you just feel that was, you know, part of the gig, part of your, part of your job and your, career? Oh, I, I liked it. You know, it always, everything's easier than writing. Writing is the thing that tortures you and makes me have dreams and nightmares and you love being done with writing. So the other media platforms were always fun and kind of like a relief in a way. Although my favorite thing was radio. I love to talk, but I don't like being in front of a camera quite as much. And it's more freewheeling on the radio. TV's more scripted. And like, I was just never quite comfortable. Our BBC show was better because we were like, we were raw. We joked about how part of our charm was we didn't know what we were doing. It was BBC. Right. Yeah. Not to knock them. They gave us a great opportunity. But suddenly it's Channel 2 and Adam Benini's there. And it's like, oh, I got my 25 seconds to talk and I can't ramble. And I got to look at this camera and then I got to look at that camera and I can't look down and I can't I can't shrug. And it's like, you know, it, it, it was a little too stiff for me, but I appreciated doing it. But TV, I won't miss, as, miss really that much. I miss people over there to great people there to uh really looking forward to our radio thing because that's where i i've never done five days a week i will quickly i haven't sent this text to shop yet and and parker i'm going to quickly gain a, a new appreciation for what you guys do <laughs> three uh, they do four hours three yeah. hours five days a week i mean i'm a little scared but on the other hand you obviously i can talk but uh it, it just filling that kind of content and knowing you're competing is going to be pretty intimidating, but I'm, I'm excited about it. And so is Bucky. Now, during your career, you were at the news during a time where Jim Kelly and Larry Felser, perhaps the two greatest Buffalo sports writers ever were there. What was it like working with them? And I'm pretty sure, I mean, I might be assuming here, I'm sure that you learned a few things in your career as well, were influenced in some way by them as well. Yeah. Just being around Larry Felser, his, I mean, he'd been around a long time, obviously covered every bills game and he, I would say he and Kelly, who was more of a dear friend of mine, like an older brother, I can and still remember, you know, his final moments in the hospital. Anyway, just their kind of unruffled, calm demeanor under pressure and doing their job in general. They've been around long enough. And I'm I'm more of a frantic, nervous guy that that I really learned from watching them operate, but also how how tough they could be, but how fair they were. You know, Larry Felser, he would give it to you straight about about the bills. And he he had gained the respect of the public here. And that it meant a lot to me to kind of take his place in a way. And it was it was it was a great responsibility, I thought, to be like Larry and to, to gain that respect and to handle my job in a in a professional way, which is hard, you know, early on. I was kind of a little wild. And Kelly's the same way. To me, Kelly was the greatest reporter I ever saw and Bucky right there with him. He knew everything that went on inside the Sabres and he was tough more so with Kelly. I thought he, he had a tough time there when the politics of the business got to be kind of rough. Uh, and he stood up and he knew everything that, everything that moved inside the Sabres, Jim Kelly knew about. And when Jim was dying of cancer that last year, he would call me. When I was having some similar trouble with the bills and writing some hard stuff, Ralph Wilson and all this, and people keep saying I would, the team was going to leave because of me. And Jim would call me just because he knew I needed someone to talk to. And he wanted to me to know he was there. And uh, 
I miss them both greatly. The, just to be considered in their company is really, is really an honor. Sure. What was it like covering the 1990s Bills? Because nowadays, everyone remembers those teams fondly, as they should. But back then, it wasn't always smooth sailing between some of the players and, and, and the coaches and stuff in the Buffalo News and other media outlets as well. You know what I mean? It wasn't always smooth between you guys. A lot of, uh, you know, the bickering Bills era and, you know, some of these players at the time, they were just huge characters. You know what I mean? Was it sometimes a difficult job to do? What do you remember most and best about covering the Bills in the 90s? Well, I do remember the Bills. I, I do remember it was very volatile. I mean, they were great. Maybe that was part of, I believe it was part of their greatness. That they were real characters and they were really competitive and they hated losing and they were out there. And that's why I kind of look back on those days as the fond days of, of sports writing because they seem more real. Mm-hmm. Today's today's players just, you know, all of us old guys think that way, but they're more controlled by their agents. They don't say anything. They don't read the paper, it seems. Those guys read the stuff. They were right there. And it was volatile and you never knew what was going to happen. And they fought with each other. And But when the game time came, they – they were a team, and they were, un- and their talent obviously was unbelievable. The talent, the combination of their talent, and Marv, and in their competitive spirit, made it a, an amazing thing. Obviously, they went to four straight Super Bowls. Uh, but I do remember the Pickering Bills, and that was my first year in here. And I was trying to be the tough guy, and I wrote a column about, you know, lack of leadership. This is a story here, so it'll, it'll ramble a little bit. Go ahead. And I, I just I start picking out players by names. I took a shot at Biscuit. Uh, Cornelius Bennett was not playing. He had a mink coat on the sidelines. Leonard Smith was, you know, he was crazy. And anyway, I wrote this column and I, I laid about eight different guys. And I went in the locker room the next day. Of course, you had to show your face. Uh, and Joe Devlin was a kind of a, a nut job offensive lineman. Said he would have killed me if his kids weren't there in the locker room. And Biscuit threatened me. And Leonard Smith called me at home. And this was, you know, Right around the time all that bickering stuff was going on, obviously. I, I don't know if the – it might have been just after Thurman took a shot at Kelly on a TV show. I'm walking out of the locker room. The late Bruce DeHaven. Now, I'm new, right? And he said, hey, Jerry. And I'm like, not you too. <laughs> he goes, what – he and Bruce, the late Bruce DeHaven, became a – I would say the closest I've had to a friend among coaches. He said, what you wrote was right on. That meant the world to me. But it was, uh, that's the kind of environment it was. it was. But it was fun to go there. You didn't know what was going to happen from day to day. The games, you know, they weren't, they didn't win every game by a blowout. There was, they had some really bad games where the defense wasn't very good and they came back. But the offense and Kelly, it was like just such, such a show. My other story, and again, I'm rambling, but la- the last year, the fourth Super Bowl, now Thurman and I had not talked for a year and a half. We might have, at this point, we're talking again, I think. And um, I wrote a, Kenny Davis was the backup, could have started in a lot of places. So I write one of my notes columns. I say, you know, in the title game against KC, it'd be nice if Kenneth Davis got 10 carries. That was just a one line. Well, Thurman thought I was saying he should not play, I guess. Oh, dear. Thurman ran like 33 times for 180 yards. It was the greatest game of his career in the playoffs, including that Super Bowl. It was his last great playoff game. He gets up after the game. He's still yelling about this. Uh, people doubted me and people thought of Kenneth Davis and they've just gone back to the Super Bowl and he was just out of control. <laughs> Kenneth Davis carried 10 times for, for like 50 yards that day too. Wow. <laughs> so, 
Thurman, I mean, they, like I said, they were real and it was just, and Kent Hall, it was Tasker. They were, they were, they just seem more mature as young men than, than the guys are now. That's all I can say. Did you ever, I mean, with some of the columns you've written, you know, some of the people that you've put on blast more times than not because they deserve it. But regardless, did you ever have any kind of reservation about going into the locker room and seeing that person afterwards? Was that ever nerve-wracking for you? Oh, you always have a reservation like that day. You think the guy is going to call you out. And, and a lot of times in recent years, it's like, God, they don't even, they don't even know what you said. So, um, but, but back in the show, you're a little nervous. Like that's why you have to, you have to go back in there as soon as possible and, and, and confront that and not let them know that you, you're just a guy like some people who will shoot from far and never go in the locker room. After that, I think it, it, it became easier. Bruce, Bruce went at me one night after a game and it got on TV and he called me a word with several syllables in it. And I said something to him and it became a big deal in town. Uh, but Hey, what are you going to do? I, I guess I became known for just standing up and do it in press conferences. I was not by nature, a very courageous person. And I was always kind of was nervous to speak in front of the class. But after a while, I just learned that someone's got to be in there. I've sat in press conferences with a hundred people and been the only person to challenge Bobby Knight. Uh, you just have to do it. And there's probably, there is too much timidity in our business. And that's what one reason why it's so discouraging to see the hard hitting columnists get neutralized in today's environment. And I just don't think that's a good thing for sports journalism. How real was it? The apparent media battle that was ongoing between the Buffalo news and WGR during that Sabres tank year or the air, I should say, actually it was a couple of years where there was just a lot of tanking going on. The Buffalo news was very much against it on, on the surface and WGR is very much for it. It seemed like you guys were really going at each other during that time. Was that, was that a media thing? Was that real? Oh, it was absolutely real. I mean, first of all, Bucky Gleason, who was the most respected hockey voice in the community, was against the tank for all of his correct reasons. Harrington pretty much came along to that point of view. Um, I wasn't really, I wasn't in it because I wasn't doing hockey columns. And I was kind of in the middle. I, I guess I could see why teams might want to lose to get a high draft pick. But in terms of the fight they had with uh, GR, first of all, you have to understand that Jeremy White is just, <laughs> he's kind of a radio genius. You know, we used to fight all the time. I was going to ask you air. that next. And people, six years later, they'll say, I miss, I love it when you are, and Jeremy argued. And I'm like, that was six years ago. <laughs> I mean, I'm not there anymore. But afterwards, sometimes we'd go, oh, that was great radio. Not that he didn't believe his point of view, but as I said earlier, you kind of, it's a, so, sort of an exaggerated version of yourself when you, it's like debate class and mm -hmm. that would go. So Jeremy embraced that. But the other thing you can't forget is that they work with the team, the team, the Sabres are on that station. And so they're going to embrace what the Sabres are doing and defend them. We call it state radio at the news or did when I was there and they can say anything they want, but their objectivity is always clouded by the fact that they're in business with the team. And in that case, I, I, and getting back to Jeremy in particular, but uh, also Shope, who's a radio genius too. They knew that the tank was great radio and, and a great, and great entertainment. What were they going to talk about every day? The team, when the team sucked and it was boring, right? So the tank, the tank was programming. So they're going to be, they could have been against the tank, but it was much more fun to be for it. 
and to, and to see what the other teams were doing, who was going to finish last. So it became a show. And the news guys were attacking, you know, in Bucky's case, from a position, a, a position of a columnist. It was his opinion. But they were also, just by the nature of the relationships of these entities, the news people were more objective. That's, that's all. And Harrington sometimes, you know, he takes it too personally. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love Harrington. He's me too. Harrington. From day one at the news, he was helping me with my technological shortcomings, and he was always there for me. And we we covered a lot of events together. But sometimes I think he should just turn off the Twitter because you know I told I, him I that through, I, he was on this podcast. Did, did I told him that? that. I told him the word for word that man. He goes at it with everybody. I'm like, dude, sometimes you just gotta ignore a troll tweet, man. Pat, it's a fact. It's a fact that for at least 18 months. After I started Twitter, I did not know what the notifications were. <laughs> and, and people who know me like Bucker go, yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's not an exaggeration. I don't have to play dumb. And when I saw that thing, I go, what is that? It says not plus a 99 and no, what does that mean? Someone said, that's people talking to you. I go, well, good. So my revenge for those two years was that they, they thought they were ripping me and trolling me. I didn't even know what was going on. That was my revenge. <laughs> I think when I finally had to figure it out, and then I had to read them sometime for that mailbag I did, another thing I had a lot of fun with. And then I had to look at them and see people telling me to retire. And it was kind of funny. But, uh, yeah, not a technological genius. <laughs> All right, I got to ask you this, okay? Let's say for the sake of discussion, a 17-year-old high school senior comes up to you right now and he says that he's thinking about becoming a sports journalist in the future. Is that something that you would endorse and recommend for him or her? I'd say to go into finance. Yeah. No, actually, look, there's going to always be journalism. There's always going to be a need for writers. And there's more. I mean, look what's going on out there now. You know, if you want to be on the Maven or the Athletic or, or ESP, there might be more of these outlets than ever competing to cover sports. Just be ready to work for nothing. You know, same with I've, I've talked to many young journalist radio I, joe joe b and i went out for an hour once when he was buff state and talked about the business um a lot of people struggle and don't make any money and leave and it's sad back in my day if you got to a newspaper right out of college you could make it make decent money and work your way up but most of those jobs are gone now so you're gonna have to go to these online ventures some pay well i, I assume the athletics pay them fairly well right now but you got to really be ambitious. And I would just say, you got to, you got to know that you love it to survive in this kind of business. But I mean, you could say that about a lot of businesses, I guess. Let's talk about the Buffalo Maven for a minute. How did this opportunity with the Buffalo Maven come about? I know you decided to kind of lay low after the thing in the Buffalo news happened when we first talked, when did this opportunity come about and, and kind of take us through a little bit of how it came about? Well, was Bucky was the, I mean, I was home, you know, cleaning out my, house in Rhode Island to sell my parents' house when, when I heard about it. He said, hey, there's this great new venture. The sports exchange is the one behind it. And they, you know, they have like a hundred million hits across many platforms per month doing things other than sports. And they decided, uh, and they've been credentialed for 30 years in the, in the NFL cities, by the way. But uh, they decided, like the Athletic, to get reporters and to go into every NFL city and cover the teams. And they're doing maybe the top 30, 40 college football teams are going heavy on football. And, you know, Bucky was told, we got to, you know, it's going to be a, a tough go. We're going to have to help sell ads. We're going to have to prove ourselves and get out there. But we're basically doing the same thing we always did. Uh, we were slow to launch it. I'm, again, I'm going to be honest, we were slow to launch because they wouldn't give us credentials and it would be very nice to be at 
preseason games and practices to get material. Not like I can't do it from my house. Right. But that's why it, it could have been launched a month ago and it was launched, um, you know, two weeks ago. We're, we're doing the exact thing that ESPN, Mike Rodak and, and, the and the athletic and whoever's covering the bills are doing, except we're not there. Right. As of right now, I assume we will get credentials. But it's an exciting site if you look at it, uh, and I love the te- me with a technological goof. It's very easy to put the stuff up and to edit it and to revise it. We got tons of stuff, and, and we're we're what we call a one-stop shop. We we put up stuff written by everybody. We don't care who's competing with us. We, we and we have the freedom to do that. We put up Rodak stuff. We put up you know Fairburn stuff, and we want people to go to us and get all their information, and then also get me and Bucky. I think the Maven is going to grow rapidly around the country. One of the reasons is it's free. Right. We, it's all, it's, you don't have to subscribe to it. It's going to be driven by ad content. That's a significant reason as well. I would say, and I mean, we, we found out with the Buffalo Blitz that people don't want to pay even a few bucks a month they, if they can get it free. And I'm, that's why I wonder about the athletic as good as it is. Reminds me of the old national newspaper from the early nineties that eventually didn't make it because it just, it was too, too, uh, cost too much money to, to keep the venture going. Let me ask you this. At the very top of this, you said that you are going to retire on your terms and no one was going to tell you when you're going to retire. How important was it for you to continue working with Bucky in a venture like this? You know, you've had a very close relationship with that work and I'm assuming off work as well through the years. How important was yeah. it for you to be able to do something like this with Bucky? Yeah, it was very important. And I was talking with other people, TV, radio in town. And even in even some print. Um, but I, uh, first of all, Bucky's like a little brother to me, you know, and he pisses me off like a little brother sometimes. But, uh, and we had built what we like to call a brand. Bucky and Sully started on our little, uh, we started actually as a little talk show on the news website and then went to TV and went to bigger TV and we did radio together. So we felt if we we're going to keep going, that that was a way to do it. There was also a part of me that said, the Buffalo News took took two columns columns away on the same day, twenty minutes apart, and we're coming back together, and, and we're going to rise from the ashes. And they they and they can't do that to us. I mean, he's he's much more, uh, he's less. I don't know if angry is the word. I can't uh, more diplomatic about what the news did. I'm not. They took they took our columns away, and as an entity, I. I think that we have a lot to offer and I did want to do it with Bucky and also that he's handling all the technological stuff. Yeah. I, I didn't want to do it alone. Uh, it's fun, exciting. He's, and it's, he's good to work with. And I've always had great respect for him. And as, as a tandem covering the bills, I always, I thought when it came to covering a team and the players, I never saw anyone better than Bucky Gleason. And if he gets a shot to cover the bills, He's going to find, he's going to break stories. Maybe that's what, maybe the bills are afraid of that. Do you have complete creative freedom to write about whatever you want with no restrictions? Short of libel and slander, I, I guess. Right. Yes. I mean, we have, and, and if we ever do anything over the line, I guess the Maven would come back to us now with the radio show. I mean, the bosses are right there in the station. I'm sure there's a limit on how far we can go. And also what our content is going to be, you know, Buck and I want to, as people who have covered the Olympics and college sports and love all sports, baseball, you know, golf, 
I wonder if at some point we're going to want to talk about all those things and local stuff stuff more than the radio station wants us to because it is bill season and people are passionate about the bills far more than anything else. So we just have to strike a balance, I think, and write a little bit about other stuff. But you know, if I swear on the air, they have an eight eight minute uh, an eight second delay delay, so they'll they'll cover for that. Tell us a little bit about the radio show that's going to be on twelve seventy. Now it's a daily show. Between 9 and 12. Do I got the hours right there? Yep, 9 and 12. What are you guys going to be doing on that? You're going to have some guests on, you know, interviews over the year and stuff like that as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some call in, but, you know, we had a little conference with a, one of their national experts that thinks you don't have to overdo the callers. You know, there people tuning in for us and for and for guests. We're, we're just putting this thing together, as I said earlier, I mean, 15 hours a week. Yeah, how do you do it? We'll, we'll get some help, but you fill the time pretty quick. I mean, I'm pretty good at filling time talking and Bucky is too. Um, and the, the content is, is perfect. Again, this expert told us about sports. It's just the perfect venue for talk radio because it's daily and it's always changing and it's competition and there's always drama. There's always things happening like a court, who's going to be the quarterback and then how good are they going to be and how, what's going to happen in this week's game and what player is, uh, you know, as a court case in all these cases, you could even look at the bills. Right. And so that, that part of it is good. And uh, then you get your, you get mixing your guests and you get different perspective, but I think they want us to be what we were in the newspaper to a great extent is people with informed opinions. One of the things they talked about, and I've always believed is people, you're like a vehicle for people to get an opinion, an informed opinion that they take and go to a bar or with their friends and then they, it becomes their opinion mm-hmm. and it gives them some t- talking points. And that's why it's tough. Uh, you have to know your stuff and have an informed opinion and not be like everybody else and know your stuff. And I think having 30 years covering the bills and being in Buffalo and Bucky, you know, 25 that we have a lot to offer. And I think people appreciate that. I wonder if one of the things you have to be careful about is not be too much about the old days and, cutting edge and I'm, and I'm sure we'll we'll do that but i also do think people love perspective they love a guy who was at the at the first super bowl game who was sure. at the no goal game who was at the olympics when nancy kerrigan was in there or when bucky covered it and covered uh you know messler winning the bobsled that, that, that those things resonate with people that they feel they're in the presence of someone that knows their stuff and has been around a little bit not some you know some kid right out of college well, you'll be talking about the bills a lot, obviously, on the radio and with your columns. Let's talk for a few minutes about the current bills as we start to wind this down. Sure. You've made it no secret that you're not a big fan of this Bills roster when it comes to talent or lack thereof. Do you think going into the season that this is going to be one of the lesser talented rosters in the league? Absolutely. It's one of the least talented Bills teams of all time. Um, and I I think Brandon Bean knows it. I took a shot at him the other day about his judgment of talent which is certainly in question because yeah i mean he's still pretty new we we don't know how good he is we don't josh allen is going to determine a lot of that but they're they have 50 million dollars patrick and dead cap that's unbelievable that's twice any other team in the league so uh, they've made a calculated decision to to deplete the talent on the roster to attrit it it was astonishing that they made the playoffs last year they didn't expect it right when you saw the players that they moved out of there you, know, you start with Darius and, and Watkins. They didn't resign Woods. 
or even Goodwin, who's now a top receiver elsewhere. Look at the talent that went out the door and they made the playoffs. And that's credit to McDermott because they did it with, I say, five, six win talent. And now, after two offensive linemen retire unexpectedly, they're down to, to me, four, four, five win talent or maybe less. But again, they're going to have $60 million to spend next year. And that's the plan. That's the vision for being. You can talk about whether he really is good at identifying talent, but he's seems to know what he's doing here. And it's not that hard. You're left by Whaley with a massive problem with all these contracts. You have to create all this dead money and quickly clear out so you can go out and spend a lot of money in the future and put your team together. Right. And then I said they didn't expect to win last year. They expect to win even less this year. And you know what they did by winning, making the playoffs? They really made it okay to suck this year. I mean, I know fans would love them to surprise and for Allen to, or Peterman to light it up and they're not that good they're just not i don't even think the defense the secondary is as good as people believe and it's going to be a rough year but you're just going to have to be patient i mean what did nine wins do for for you really end of the drought i'm glad because then we'd be talking about i mean we'll be talking about if if danny dalton doesn't make that throw we're talking about 18 years without the playoffs and maybe the worst team in the league and and that's after a while that's tough for fans. So what I like to call the psychic impact of making the playoffs is very significant. Bills fans felt they got a relief there, but in terms of how good your team is and how far away you are from the Super Bowl, you're as far away as you've ever been. In terms of what you know for sure, but it's it's about Josh Allen really. If he's good, if he's great, you're going to be a contender down the road. If he's not, I don't even want to contemplate. Well, you've covered a lot of quarterbacks through your years. What does your gut tell you about how good or bad Josh Allen's going to turn out to be? Obviously, it's too early to know that for sure, of course. But what does your gut tell you about this kid? My you- gut, I've been, like you said, I've been through a lot. My gut is always skeptical. I think he's better than Lossman. I'll just go there. He's better than Lossman. Is he as good as Bledsoe? I don't know. I, I think he, I think he's, he seems bright. He's pick some things up, but accuracy is always an issue. I mean, JP Lawson could throw the ball as far as Allen almost. And he was an athlete who could run and he just couldn't make decisions under pressure and put the ball where he needed to. And, and, and analyze defenses. We're told about how good Allen is in the white on the whiteboard. I just don't know. I, I saw good things. I will say after the second preseason game, his footwork and his movement, I was impressed. I didn't realize he was that athletic. But then in the third preseason game, when when a really good Bengals defense came at him and he had no protection, he just didn't he just didn't seem up to it. But it is hard to judge when your receivers can't get separation, your offensive line is bad. So it's gonna they really need to rebuild this team around him. And I think they know that. I don't think they really care how, how good he plays this year as long as he doesn't completely turn out to be a bust. Uh, they have to rebuild their their team. And it's going to take time. Okay, so now we're taping this on Sunday to air on Tuesday morning. The Bills made their cuts over the weekend, and then they traded A.J. McCarron to the Raiders for a fifth-round pick next year. What are your thoughts on that move for the Bills? Are you a little surprised they traded McCarron? And what are your thoughts on that trade itself? No, I wasn't surprised. I, I expected it, actually. And, and the fifth is great. not a great day for the Raiders. I mean, some of the, uh, I don't know, I'm on the side that you, you just don't trade an, an all pro linebacker for two, two, even for two picks. Um, we'll see down the road what they do. 
Um, McC- they were in a tough spot with McCarron, as I wrote. They brought him in, paid him $10 million over two years to compete for the starter's job. Uh, I mean, most of us thought in April he would be the starter. Uh, but uh, I do know, and Bucky knows even more from talking to him, that McDermott has loved Peterman all along. So uh, there was a very good chance Peterman would be their guy and Allen would be there too. And then what are you going to do with McCarron? And I don't think it would have looked good for them to have him be the number three and not active on game days after giving him a $10 million two-year contract. Nor would it have looked good to cut him. So this trade was great for them. It gave them an out where they got something for him. I mean, a fifth-round pick for a guy you might cut or be your number three is a pretty good deal. Sure. Listen, I got one more question for you, and then we're going to end with the mini lightning round. I've went almost an hour with you, man. I have not asked you one single question about golf. But you're almost known... You're almost, you know, over the last 10 years or so, I'd say at least, known for your golf adventures as much as your Bills writing. When did this passion and love for golf, was this something that you always loved even going back as a kid? Tell me a little bit about your passion for golf because, I mean, it's pretty widely known. I hated golf as a kid. I hated golf up into my 40s. There's a specific answer to this. In the year 2000, in the spring, Mark Gaughan wrote a preview column about the wonders of golf and what's, what makes it great, not the sport, but the other things. And I had the column the next day, and I said, mm, I need a column. I think I'll write about golf and what Mark's talking about and see if I like it. I, had, I dabbled a little bit, but I never really liked the sport. I go into the editor, and I tell him uh, what I'm thinking. He goes, okay, he was busy going to a meeting. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he calls me in, Howard Smith. He goes, so let's talk about the golf series. I go, series? I wanted to write a column. He goes, no, here's what we're going to do. You're going to play golf all summer, try to break 100, and write about what it's like. <laughs> I remember that so well. So it was the mo- he called it the most popular thing he'd ever done in the paper. Every, every other week for four months, I wrote about golf and struggled, suffered, and people loved it. Most people, golfers loved it because, you know, the, the wise-ass uh, – columnist was humbled because I didn't break a hundred and I struggled with it. And I went through all the things other people did, taking lessons, thinking you're getting better. Then you get worse. Then you buy clubs. You think the clubs are great. Then you hate the clubs. And then you try to, you don't know how to like keep your score. You don't know how to dress. Uh, at one point I whined about women, not, you know, writing me emails. And then the women had me out. So it was great. So that's where it started 44 years old. And you know what happened that I didn't expect? I became a golf addict. And I've been playing ever since. And I would say gradually, I get a little better every year. I'm shooting the 90s now most of the time. But I've had a little of a, a backsliding because, you know, it's great if you start when you're a kid, you know, and you have a, a prime where you hit the ball far. I never had a prime. So just as I start to figure the game out, now I'm old guy golfer. I can't, I can't get off the tee. Yeah, that torques so, a little bit less. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love the game. I'm glad you asked that. So and I'm playing tomorrow, I think. That's in this same way. I always do a little mini lightning round. No deep thought required. I'm just going to ask you a, a handful of random questions and whatever. Okay, you think I'll first, try. Let me know. Let's go. Ready? Favorite athlete you've ever covered? Daryl Talley. Favorite activity to do that doesn't include golf? Stratomac baseball. Favorite city to visit? Favorite city to visit? Um, London. Who's the most entertaining fellow? Buffalo sports media member, you know, most entertaining sports media member, Josh Reed. What's in your opinion, the best sports movie ever? Um, Hoosiers hands down. Okay. 
Do you have a favorite TV show? A uh, favorite TV show right now. God, I'm blanking on this. Uh, there's so many of them. Um, Better Call Saul. If you had never gotten involved in sports writing in any capacity when you were young, what do you think you may have went on to do with your life? English teacher and coach. Also meet the press for the previous question. Second last question here. If Twitter were to send you a note and say, hey, Jerry, you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and one person only, who would that person be? Oh, my God. Um, Bernie Sanders. Okay. Last question. Three dinner guests from any era, dead or alive, any era. Who you got? Meryl Streep. Tom Waits. Barack Obama. Hey, very good. All right, Jerry Sullivan, everyone. Give him a follow on Twitter at ByJerrySullivan. Make sure to check him out on the Buffalo Maven website. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And of course, tune into his show with Bucky Gleason on 1270 The Fan every weekday between 9 a.m. and noon. I appreciate this, Jerry. This was a lot of fun getting to talk right, to you in this right. capacity. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And thanks for uh, you know promoting our new ventures. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. I hope I've, uh, I hope I've been open and, you know, you have forthcoming, you know, I tend to hold back. You, you, you sure you don't want more? <laughs> I think we're good, man. I think we're good. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Patrick. Pat with pucks. All right. I'm here with Tone Pucks. That was a pretty candid interview. I just had with Jerry Sullivan who frankly still feels quite volatile towards the Buffalo news over everything. What's your take on that? What went down with the Buffalo news? Yeah, well, for years now, Candid and Sully have kind of gone hand in hand. So I I didn't expect anything less, you know, when it came to that interview and and what may have been his his first opportunity to really put it all out there, which is, is is very cool to have. Look, man, you know, a lot of the other guys you know, may, may have landed in spots where they can tell their story or continue to do their thing. Whereas, you know, Sully, like was talked about, he had the column taken away from him and there was a lot of speculation, all right, that that may have come from external factors. And there is nothing, I, I think I said it when it happened and, I, you know, it hasn't been proven to this point. And I think it's just going to ultimately go away as far as, you know, the outside world is concerned. But I don't imagine it ever goes away for him. And when we talk about potential external factors uh, playing a role in this, we're you know, we're talking about the teams themselves. We're talking about the ownership. And if a columnist lost his voice to, uh, you know, to bad press from or, or the you know, the team owners not liking the bad press. Um, it doesn't get much more bullshit than that. So he's got every right to feel that way. And, and, you know, as for his upcoming gig, it was successful when they were teamed at the news. I imagine it'll be, you know, pretty successful now. It's it's tough to say equally as su- su- successful. I'll get it there eventually. But, I, you know, we talked about that as well when it all started to go down. The bill season is going to be our first look at, just how well the fan base finds these other, you know, avenues to to listen to the guys that they once did in their uh, in their newspaper. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. Oh, by the way, dude, do you realize fifty episodes? This is the fiftieth episode. Fifty episodes in, we are now, and you've been on at least what 20, 22 of those. 
and I've listened to like three. So <laughs> I did. I wouldn't expect anything less. All right, man. Listen, so big news to come out on Monday morning from Sean McDermott's presser is that they're not going to waste time messing around this week, keeping anyone in suspense, whether it's fans, the Baltimore Ravens, anyone. Nate Peterman, as expected by most, has been named the starter. First, I got to give props to you for calling this quite literally several months ago. In fact, all the way back to when Tyrod Taylor was still a Buffalo Bill. How are you feeling about him starting today? And do you think he's going to hold on to this job for a long period of time? Or do you think he's just keeping that seat warm for you know? I feel great about the news that he's going to start. It's fun to be right and not because I want to throw it in everybody's face. I I don't really care uh, about that. But um, I thought it was illogical to write this guy off as, as quickly and as adamantly as so many people were doing based off of that game. And I thought it would have been a big mistake for the Bills to do it as well. I saw a lot of good things in the way this guy threw the football, prepared, you know, read the field, things like that. I mean, it's it was such a mess against San Diego that it can it can sound really foolish to say those things. But if I take San Diego out of it, I think people would have been chopping it to bit to have this guy uh, be their quarterback. And I, for one, was chomping at the bit because I want to see him redeem himself. I want to be right about not only him being the Bills starter, but also being pretty good. Whether that will uh, amount to an extended period uh, of being the starter this year, boy, that, that's going to be tough because I think the uh, the early uh, read on it is a terrible start to the season and the Josh Allen clock starts ticking very shortly after week four. I think Peterman survives it. I think Peterman survives it. I think it'll probably only take one win and some close games to survive it. Uh, You know, coming out of there one and three. And I think he plays up until it starts to become a lost season as it relates to the playoffs. But I, I think he surpasses the halfway mark, at least, yeah. I'll tell you what, man. First and foremost, he deserves it. He deserves the opportunity, if nothing else. He earned it. McDermott said it was an open competition, a fair competition, and he was the best of the three quarterbacks during the summer, during the preseason. So from that aspect, I don't have any issue with him starting. I don't know if you listened to last Friday's episode, but I had Matt Warren on from Buffalo Rumleys. He said about Peterman, his biggest issue with him is that he fears that teams are going to adjust to him really quick and really easy, that they're going to start jamming receivers up on the line because he gets rid of the ball quick. His arm strength, you know, throwing those long outs is not the greatest. You know, he is. He's a fast quarterback when it comes to processing stuff and getting rid of the football, and that's great. But he also seems like, unless he's going to be accurate throwing the ball down the field and, you know, making teams adjust, if he's just going to throw those quick outs, like we saw a lot of that during the preseason, Teams are going to adjust on him pretty quickly, and that might make for a very short career for him as a starter. I'm pretty sure you disagree with that. Do you? No, not so much in in that the the defenses might adjust to that schematically. I think that's a really good good take on it by by Matt, but I, I don't know that it necessarily you know, hinders him any more than it does any other quarterback. I, I, I think, you know, if he's got to get the ball with a little bit of zip into a, uh, you know, into a soft spot in the field, then 
you know, I think there's there's reason to believe that he can do that. You know, yeah, he lacks optimum arm strength, but I don't think he's Chad Pennington either, man. All right. I mean, he had some zip on that ball to Riley that uh, that was referenced a couple times sure. the last time. We, that was a great throw. Yep. You know, and I think there's there's reason to believe that Peterman could overcome that now. All right. Is there reason to believe that the Bills receiving core uh, can overcome, you know, being played physically on the line. I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I don't know X's and O's well enough to know what the, you know, what the best route is against, uh, against the jam. Is it the go route? You know, is, is it, uh, you know, a small fast guy? Is it Ray Ray McLeod, you know, jukey off the jam, or is it a Kelvin Benjamin's ability, uh, ability to, you know, to be physical off the jam? I don't know what beats the jam. All right. And so, I can't really speak to that. I'm not until, like I said, I'm not, you know, savvy enough with X's and O's, but I don't think that, you know, jamming your receivers is, is necessarily going to be any more detrimental to, to, you know, to Peterman than just, you know, good coverage and, and not letting guys get open, which a lot of people think is going to be an issue this year for, for the bills and their receivers. There are a few other things of note from McDermott's presser Monday, mainly that Ryan Groy will be the starting center. And that the quarterback decision between Vontae Davis and Philip Gaines has not yet been decided, which to me is concerning. And we'll talk about those in a few, but I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's go position by position here, and we'll quickly run down the Bills 53 after cuts were made this weekend, and of course the trade. And I want to get a few thoughts from you on each position. Let's start with the quarterback. We already talked about Peterman. We don't need to spend much time talking about Josh Allen. We know that eventually his time's going to come. It's just a matter of when but he's going to get an opportunity. That much we know. But A.J. McCarron was traded to the Raiders for a fifth-round pick. What were your thoughts on that? I don't know that either of us are surprised that McCarron did get traded, but do you think it was the right move to do, and are you satisfied with the fifth coming back? I 100% think it was the right move. I'm 100% satisfied with the fifth coming back. I'm not surprised by this. I think if the Bills were really that in love with the idea of AJ McCarron, he would have been a day one signing and not a day two or day three, you know, once musical chairs was done. Sure. The only thing I don't love about the position right now, the way it stands is I'm a, I'm a three quarterback kind of guy. That doesn't mean that I wanted it to be AJ McCarron. I don't think he's the right guy, you know, to be a three. I think McCarron, you know, felt like he was going to come here to start or be a two. And I think being a three, when you can get an asset for him and a fifth is an asset, I think that's the right thing. But man, I, I, you know, I would have a quarterback on my practice squad every single year. There's just, especially if I'm, if I'm only a two quarterback team, there's no way in hell I don't have a third quarterback in my, in my system. And I, you know, I don't care if Logan Thomas played it. All right. I've got some sort of disaster quarterback in my in my building on my field practicing with my team each and every week like Joe Webb was perfect for it a guy who could play special teams and goes into a game and wins you a game against the Indianapolis Colts that ultimately ended up being needed to be a playoff team not having a third I, is not something I'm in favor of I agree with you 100% about that and as of we're taping this on Monday afternoon so you know this airs tomorrow morning and I'd be shocked if the Bills don't add someone to the practice squad who plays quarterback. 
And in terms of McCarron, I agree that it was probably smart to trade him because I'll tell you what, getting a fifth pick is not a, a bad deal. That fifth pick matters. The Bills actually have a, a pretty good history with fifth round picks. You know what I mean? To Kyle Williams, Matt Milano, stuff like that. Yeah. But, yes. but here's what I hate. Everyone is talking about A.J. McCarron like he's a bum. He wasn't a bum. You know what? He sucked in the first three quarters of that Chicago game. And then he was like incredible in the fourth quarter. So you're going to say that he sucks for three and then discount the fourth quarter? He played really good. He threw the ball well. He got some time to throw. I know these were twos and actually mainly threes out there. So I'm not going to put a lot of stock into it. But the guy's not a goddamn bum either. He's a pretty serviceable quarterback. Yeah, I know he didn't get uh, a whole lot of chances in, in Cincinnati either. Um, but at the end of the day, he ended up uh, being a Dennis Green quarterback, man. All right. A.J. McCarron is who we thought he was. And he has already established that uh, his identity, I think, in this league. Um, and that's why I chose against him, because I, I, I felt like, you know, he had his ceiling. He had kind of leveled out. Yeah. Um, and I thought, and I thought Peterman still had more, more to show. So yeah, you were right I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you on McCarron, man. But at the end of the day, you know, in the words of Denny, he, he was who I thought he was anyways. And, and that's what you were right about. And I was wrong. You're right. Peterman's upside is, is far better than what McCarron is at right now, because I do think AJ leveled off when what you get with him is what you're going to get. And that's the way he's probably not going to change. Let's talk about the running backs real quick. No real surprise there. McCoy, Ivory. Marcus Murphy and Taiwan Jones, those are the four running backs. Taiwan Jones, obviously, because of his special teams ability. I guess the real loser in this was Traveris Cadet, strictly because just an unbelievable preseason that Marcus Murphy had. I, I think they wanted to see Traveris Cadet do well because of how he worked his way back from injury last year. But at the end of the day, he just got beat out. And I, I was a little surprised at Taiwan Jones. You know, I don't know that they necessarily, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to carry three uh, halfbacks, but or no, wait, or Jones. Uh, yeah, four halfbacks. I mean, that's uh, that's a big number, man. So I, I thought it was possible that it would just be the three halfbacks and DeMarco. But, you know, special teams carry some weight. And uh, I think they like Jones in the locker room, too. I mean, you remember the way that sideline exploded after uh, after that play last year on the end of round yep. uh, where he got the first down. I mean, look, that was that was partially, you know, how big the play was. But that was also the sort of thing where, you know, you could tell the popularity of Jones. So and he's reliable, uh, you know, as a returner as well, if, if nobody more dynamic goes and grabs that job. So. Patrick DeMarco is the one fullback. Never really had any competition. Tight end, that was a position that I didn't really think much of going into the preseason, and it did turn out to be really intriguing. They keep four, which is kind of a mild surprise, and it's kind of testament to how well that unit played. Charles Clay, Kroom, Logan Thomas, Kyrie Lee makes the team, and Nickel Larry's out. I've always felt like the idea that ever ever since uh, O'Leary was in trouble, I always felt like that spoke more to what we should expect to see uh, offensively from Dayball versus Dennison. I, I think the third tight end or just the, the tight end group uh, in general speaks to uh, higher volume of usage in the passing game with Dayball as opposed to Dennison's use of them in the running game. Wide receivers, they keep six. Pretty standard number there. To some people, at least, the surprise is that Corey Coleman is not one of them. 
reports came out and I've heard the same thing by several ex players and stuff like that. That are still around that team at Corey Coleman did not have a very good attitude. Didn't want to be in Buffalo contemplated, not even coming to Buffalo. And he just didn't fit here on the field or off the field. So he's out. The bills gave up a seventh in 2020 for him. That's the only major surprise there. I take that back. Actually, I'm a little bit mildly surprised too that Ray Ray McLeod and Robert Foster are in over guys like Streeter. You know, I, I, back to uh, the Coleman thing real quick. I, I thought Tim Graham really had the tweet of the day uh, about Corey Coleman. And he said, you know, to sum up Coleman's career in Buffalo, we forgot to even ask McDermott about him getting cut. And that's a trip, man. All right. I mean, of all the questions at today's press conference that that were asked, nobody asked about the cut, you know, the release of Corey Coleman. As far as the cuts are concerned, boy, man, you know, two times now, two seasons now, they've brought Rod Streeter in and uh, and hyped him up, uh, you know, coming into camp. And neither time was he able to solidify a roster spot last year because of injury. This year, because I think they went with the young with with the younger kids uh, at five and six because they know how bad they are and they want to try to improve themselves for next year. And one of the best ways to improve yourself for next year is to groom a couple kids with a lot of talent, you know, to be contributors next year. And then you only got to find your stud. You don't have to find your stud and your depth. So um, the move ended up, you know, making sense when you look at the position and you look at uh, a building for a future at a position, I think McLeod and certainly Foster uh, speak to that. Listen, I'm not going to spend time talking on this offensive line. We've spent way too many minutes, way too many weeks talking about it. There were no major surprises. Well, I guess maybe Connor McDermott making the 53 is a, a minor surprise, but I think we both agree on this. They're a tire fire. They're a train wreck. They're deplorable. It's probably the one of the worst offensive lines that we've ever seen around this town. You know it. I know it. What do we really need to talk about other than wake me up when they get a couple guys in here who can play on this line? Because it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, we agree that it is not a position of strength. Oh, God. Um, I, you know, you know, listen, it just you used a, a, a lot of strong adjectives there, and I probably fall a little short of using all those, okay? Obviously, I go further than it not being a position of strength. It is a clear weakness, uh, not only on this team, but probably across the league and quite possibly uh, in the history of this franchise. It's historical. If, you know, uh, that's, that's a reach, all right? That is a reach off of a preseason, okay? That's a reach off a preseason, a half of which was spent on a quarterback who just wasn't ready yet, all right, and versus a defensive line that gave out two massive contracts the very next day and not just because of the preseason performance against Buffalo, okay? <laughs> Look, this is a bad offensive line, and time will tell just how bad, but, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't buy into the whole, well, just put, you know, Peterman out there because no matter what, the, the offensive line is going to get the quarterback killed. Uh, this is a coaching staff who has shown an ability 
to coach around its weaknesses. You know, I was thinking about Khalil Mack uh, today as, as well, something I'm sure we'll get to, and how the Bills did against Mack last year. You know, they know how to scheme against other teams' strengths and their own weaknesses. So, yo, let's let's see what we're saying about this line in a couple weeks. Probably the same thing. Listen, right? I know you. I've known you most of my life. You have right now well thought out meditated answers. I am looking forward to talking to you on Sunday and the Sunday after that during the game or immediately after when you see this offensive line play, your reactions are going to be so different. In fact, you inspire me to not give us cool down time to tape after games. We're going to have to start. I'm not going to let you cool down for three, four hours and let you think out some logical, politically correct responses about this line. It's fucking the worst. It's the worst and it's not going to get better. Besides Deion Dawkins, there's not one single player on that offensive line that's going to be any better in week 17 than it is in week one. Nobody. No one. That's it. All right, man. Period. End of story. Let's head to defense. Let's talk defense. Defensive line. Eh, not a lot to talk about there. They kept the four tackles we thought were they were going to they kept the four ends we thought they were going to. Shaq Lawson does make the team. I mean, there was a little, you know, talk and whispers that, hey, this guy doesn't look good. They're going to get rid of him. They didn't. I think a lot of that might have to do more with Trent Murphy's health being a question mark as opposed to Shaq Lawson really earning a spot and looking good during the preseason. Yeah, I, although I think um, I think even with a healthy Murphy, I think I think Shaq makes it. I mean, you obviously you want more um, out of a first round pick than just to be a depth guy, but I don't think they were going to cut him. I, I really didn't think he was a, a cut candidate as a lot of people did, you know, unless he came in and the attitude was bad and, you know, that sort of thing. But the the only thing at uh, at defensive end, and it, it proved to be true today when they hit the practice field, is they kept the sort of numbers that told us uh, yesterday that Kyle and and Trent Murphy were probably you know trending in the right direction. Otherwise, I think we would have seen uh, a, another guy kept. And sure enough, today you know both guys were on the sleds, and what you know was a, a position that did not look good in the preseason uh, for the Bills, yet one that we all thought would be a position of strength. It looks like they're, they're, they're nearing full strength. And I've looked forward to being able to watch them, as I think you have too. So uh, great to see you know that group shake out uh, much the way we, we saw it shaking out going into camp. Moving on the linebacker to keep six, Alexander Edmonds-Milano, and then Julian Stafford, Humber, and Lacey. Not a lot to talk about here again other than I think we come to the same conclusion that we better damn well hope that the first three I said stay healthy. Oh, man. I, you know, Sanford has, uh, has, has played a little bit in this league uh, on the defensive side of the ball as well as special teams. I think he you know, can be a, a fill-in guy for a short-term period. Uh, and I think Humber can be too. I think if you end up with both of them on the field at the same time, you got a problem. But I don't hate our depth here. I, I don't. Seriously? You yeah, don't? Yeah, no, man. Look, Humber's, Humber started in this league. Sanford has played snaps in this league. And Lacey's a, uh, um, is a special teamer. I, I you know, uh, Alexander has shown that he can move inside 
if uh, you know if Edmonds were to go down, no, I don't, I don't, I don't hate the position. I'd like to get at least one more quality linebacker. Or don't like that depth. Last thing, the secondary, no major surprises there. Ryan Lewis did get picked off um, waivers from New England. I guess the real, the only story about the secondary is the emergence of Philip Gaines potentially starting over Fonte Davis, which concerns me mainly because. I didn't see a lot from Philip Gaines during the preseason that said, wow, this guy's looking really good. He should be out there starting. I feel like it's more of an indictment on the way Vontae Davis has looked over these last few weeks. Do you agree? Absolutely. There's cause for concern there. We'll see how it shakes out, you know, for him to talk about it, him being McDermott, to talk about it in such uncertain terms when he was asked about it this morning. I'm not, there was a message there, uh, possibly to, you know, to Davis, but we'll have to, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, man. We'll have to wait and see. I feel like if he loses that starting spot, his time here may be numbered. He might be on that waiver while you're in a week or two, finding someone else and uh, getting rid of him at that point. I hope he plays well though. I like him. And I, I do think he still has some talent. He's definitely on the downside of his career, but just because he's on the back nine doesn't mean he can't be a good player still. Yeah, you know, we'll see, man. He got abused by Ross, uh, who I think probably is going to blow up in, in year two. The problem will be if if he can't stay with, you know, a replacement level uh, receiver. If he can't stay with, uh, you know, with number twos, guys that, uh, that can't stretch the field with sprinter speed the way, you know, uh, John Ross can for Cincinnati. If, if he can't keep up, you know, with the average Joes, then it's time It's time for him to take a hard look at where his career is headed. Okay, it's that time. I waited a long time to be able to do this. The games count starting this weekend. And I love doing stuff like this because we can go back six months from now or whenever and see how we did. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run off a series of categories. Obviously, the biggest one, let's start right away. What's your record or what's your prediction right now, the 2018 Buffalo Bills? What's their record going to be? Not nearly as bad as everybody thinks. I've got him. I've got him uh, at eight and eight, uh, and finishing the season, you know, with a lot of momentum towards next year. I just think the schedule really, uh, uh, really lightens up in the second half, and and everybody is is really, you know, focused on this first quarter of the season and and how bad the start can be and all those things, and with good reason. But it, it's a really easy i hate to say it but it, it's it's a pretty easy looking second half and and one that i think this team can can find its way to eight and eight in i agree about the second half being a lot easier i think they're going to be five and eleven and i think it's only because of the second half i think they're going to lose seven of their first eight games team mvp who you got you think this team's coming out one and seven yes. to start the season yep i'm gonna fucking i'm gonna fight you if that happens all right one and seven it's happening what did you ask, Team What? Team MVP. You know, man, I'm just going to go with who I think is the team's best player, and hopefully he finds his way to doing enough things that make him the you know the most valuable. I'm going to go with Trey White on this as the team's MVP. I'm going to go with Tremaine Edmonds. I know it's kind of a shocker, but I love Oh, you fucker. I love it. I love I, it. I love I, him. I, play. I, He's I playing in it. front of three really good defensive tackles. I, you said this last week, and I completely agree with you. I thought it was a great point. They really, I think they kind of held him back a little bit during the preseason. No blitzes. He hasn't really done anything fancy. They haven't showcased what he could do much. He was just playing basic middle linebacker. I think they're going to start unleashing him on Sunday. 
And he might not look amazing the first game or two, but I really think by the midpoint of the year, he's going to become the best player on this team, frankly. Who's your dud of the year? Dude, this is so unfair, all right, to these to these guys because um, it's not because they're underachievers by any stretch of the imagination. I, I, th- I think I think Kyle and Shady both hit walls this year and uh, and and their careers fizzle out. It could happen. I'll give you a third. I was thinking sort of the same thing about Charles Clay. I think he'll, he'll end up missing a few games because he gets banged up, his knee hurts or something. That always seems to happen with him. Great talent. But when he does, I think the other guys are going to eventually take a lot of playing time away from him. I really, really like Jason Kroom. Lee can make plays, and I like Logan Thomas. He's, you know, these guys are equally athletic and they're younger. So I think Charles Clay is going to be poised to uh, kind of fizzle out, and this will be his last year in Buffalo. You're not the only one who likes Jason Kroom, from what I hear. <laughs> Yo, hold on though. <laughs> Let's. I want to go back to that real quick, just because we both did the same thing. If we had to take a young player with expectations to be an underachiever, as opposed to you know the direction that we both went with that, you know, as older players hitting the wall. Do you have a young player with high expectations that uh, that wouldn't meet him? I'll give you mine. Go ahead. And it's, it's it's not because I have any real reason to believe this, but I think we're all very very quick. All right, to say that Deion Dawkins is just fine as far as this offensive line is concerned, and everybody else is the problem. I'm not sure how much we've seen from Deion Dawkins to just say, hey we can put him out there and leave him on an island and count on him, you know, to not be part of the problem. I, I think there's still reason to believe that uh, um, that there's work to be done there. Well, you know, that's a good point. My guy, by virtue of him being a starter, is John Miller. He's still young. I, I He's not going to last. It ain't happening. Expectation-wise, well, McDermott has expectations of him. He's starting. They didn't find anyone on the waiver wire who they liked more. They didn't make a trade for another guard. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have no expectations for Miller. The team does. And if you want me to, I know you're not going to like this answer. If you, I'll even give you a second one. I don't think Nate Peterman is going to be very good. I'm proud that he's a starter because he's earned it. So I got no problem with him starting. I got no problem with McCarron getting dealt. I got no problem with Josh Allen not starting because he's not ready. I just flat out do not think that Nate Peterman is going to work out for a very long period of time. So if you're talking expectations, at least going by your expectations, that's for damn sure. I'll go with Nate Peterman. All right. I think we both got the same rookie of the year, right? Yeah. I'm I mean, skipping but he's your, he's your MVP. And quite frankly, the only reason he wasn't my MVP is because I didn't want to double up on an answer. So, um, yeah, I, I'll tell you this though. Obviously he he's going to be my pick for rookie of the year, but, don't sleep on Harrison Phillips. I like him a lot. I think he's going to become a really important part of this defensive line before long. As like you said, if Kyle gets hurt and can't get healthy, or if he hits that wall that you're talking about, that means more playing time for Harrison Phillips. I like that kid a lot. Here's hoping, man. They're going to need him. Give me a bold Bills prediction. Give me another one because you've already made several of them. You've talked about Shady and Kyle hitting a wall. You got anything else up up there? Well, it, look, it's it, it's along those same lines, man. It's along those it's along those same lines, and this does not bode well for a guy who drafted 
you know, LaShawn McCoy in the second round of a, of a fantasy draft. But I, the more I think of it, the less he participates in, in, in activities, you know, leading up to the season and how you usually see that go, you know, when the season comes around and just the 30 year old wall and all that shit. Look, I'm going to, you want bold. I'll, I'll go bold. Marcus Murphy leads the Buffalo Bills in rushing yards this year. Wow. Wow. All right, well, mine's not going to measure up. Mine is this. Josh Allen becomes the Bills' permanent starter on Sunday, October 7th at home against Tennessee in Week 5 for the then 0-4 Bills. <laughs> and it's there. They'll get their first win to start the Josh Allen era. The Bills are dropping their first four games. That's happening. And then Josh Allen's coming in Week 5, and they're going to get their first win. That is the Bills' bowl prediction from me. You hate that. Of course I do, yeah. These both could have been, by the way, you know how we do our unpopular opinion at the end. I think (laughs) we could have used these right there and that would have worked. I'm good with that. Nah, but we're still going to do that. But before that, quickly, let's go around the league. I want you to give me your biggest NFL storyline for this year. Um, I think that it's going to finally feel, well, not finally, it's only been one season, but I think the Los Angeles teams are going to make a lot of noise uh, this year. Clearly one of them did already uh, in the off season with what the Rams went and did. And I I think it's going to really start to feel like Los Angeles is back in the NFL this year. And, 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 you know, with the, with the stadium, you know, that absolute freaking Taj Mahal, nutso stadium that uh, that will probably every time one of these two teams play, you know, we'll be getting some sort of aerial view of the progress, uh, you know, of the stadium that opens next year. And I think both these teams are going to be very good. And um, yeah, I think I think Los Angeles really gets back on the NFL map this year. I was going to go with the Cleveland Browns being in the playoff hunt all the way to week 17. But then I saw how bad Fucking Hugh Jackson is on hard knocks. There's no way that's happening as long as he's head coach. So that's not happening. So instead, I think the New England Patriots, while they will still win the AFC East because the other three teams, frankly, you know, they stink. This is going to be the year that they look more beatable than any time in the past 20 years or so. And they're going to get bounced handily in the first round, the divisional round of the playoffs. I like it. All right. Last thing. Give me your AFC and NFC champions, followed by a Super Bowl prediction. Put it all on the line right now, September. What is it? September 4th. Put it all on the line, man. I don't put shit on. You know I don't. You know I waffle. You know I don't put it all on the line. But here's what I'll say. All right. Until Tom Brady is no longer with the New England Patriots, they will be my AFC Super Bowl selection each and every year. All right. I, I, I love Pittsburgh this year. I really do. I think, you know, as long as Bell eventually gets there, um, I think they're poised to have a great year. I think you could go in a lot of directions, you know, other than the Patriots. I think you can convince yourself of a decline with the Patriots, but I'm just not ready to do that. All right. As long as Tom Brady's there, they'll be my Super Bowl pick. In the NFC, you know, I mean, I am. 50-50 on the Minnesota Vikings and the New Orleans Saints. I don't know which one to go with here, man. I simply don't. Their 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 game last year in the playoffs came down to a, a you know a miracle pass 
And, you know, I think they're going to be the two best teams in the NFC this year. And what I'll say is this, all right, if it's the Vikings, I like the Patriots to win the Super Bowl and figure out. No, 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 no. Hold on, come on. Make the fucking pick, man. If it's the Saints, I like Drew Brees to go out on top. that's not, that's not working. No fucking waffling. Pick one of those two teams. I don't care. Flip a coin in your mind right now. Pick a team and give me a Super Bowl winner. The Saints get redemption on the Vikings, beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl, and Drew Brees passes the torch to newly acquired Teddy Bridgewater in 2019. I like that. For me, I like Jacksonville in the AFC over the Chargers, a team that I felt really good about. And I picked them earlier to go to the Super Bowl, but I really love that Jacksonville defense. I do. And in the NFC, man, I, I, I really think that this is finally going to be the Vikings year. They're going to beat the Rams in the NFC title game. Not the Eagles, not the Falcons, not the Saints. And then they're going to beat the Jacksonville Jaguars in the Super Bowl. You like that? You like that? You like that? (laughs) I I see what you did there. So you've got the Bills opening the season at 1-7, and and you've got a Super Bowl with Kirk Cousins and Blake Bortles. The all-time nightmare. Fuck your 2018. It's the nightmare NFL for whoever. Vision. What is it? Okay, Who has it? Fox. It's, it's a fucking nightmare for Fox or CBS. Whoever has that Super Bowl. Jacksonville, Minnesota ratings disaster. But that is going to be your Super Bowl. Your 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 entire vision of the 2018 season is awful. It's time we might as well just start talking about the Sabers if this season plays out the way you think it's going. <laughs> we might as well move right on to the four lines and three defensive pairings for the Sabers right now. <laughs> I feel like this has been a segment that has been littered with unpopular opinions. However, none of them have been the official one. So it's the last thing we do every week. Give me your ninth unpopular opinion for this week. The Raiders did not do as poorly as everybody says they did in the Khalil Mack trade. I'm not saying, all right, that Khalil Mack is not an extremely good game-changing defensive talent, okay? But, I mean, people were putting a gold jacket on him, all right, after this trade. They, they, I mean... He future Hall of Famer traded all this shit. I'm sorry. I see it just as likely that Khalil Mack goes the way of Albert Hainsworth or Marcel Darius as he does go the way of a, you know, slam dunk Hall of Famer. There's still a lot to prove to live up to that money and to prove the Raiders were all that crazy in acquiring two picks. Uh, two first rounders for a guy that didn't seem like he uh, he wanted to be there. It's pretty solid. With mine, I'm going to lose the few Bills fans that I have remaining. I'm going to say this. I think this offense this year may be worse than any Bills offense that we saw during the drought. I hate you. I didn't think it was possible, but I hate you even more than I did 30 seconds ago. <laughs> All right, listen, I have to give a shout out to my man, Damone Harris, the UB defensive end who went undrafted and signed with Tampa. He didn't make the 53-man roster, but he did get signed immediately after to the practice squad. I'm really excited for him. Me and Mrs. Moran are going to be taking him out for dinner to celebrate in Tampa real soon. Tone, you got anyone out there you want to give a shout-out to? 
I know we have a little stick here where I normally do not give a shout out to anyone because nobody is really deserving of Tone Puck's shout out. But I would like to give a shout out to the Fear Boners and their manager, Patrick Moran, on their consecutive Ugh. playoff streak coming to an end this year. Hey, it was a great run. It was a great run. And, uh, you know, you'll just be watching the playoffs from the sidelines this year. You're terrible. And frankly, you should lose followers and podcast subscribers if you can't make the fantasy <laughs> baseball playoffs with six spots in a 12-team league. You suck. All right, that'll do it for this episode, the 50th episode of the Analytics Podcast. One more time, a huge thank you to Jerry Sullivan, now writing for Buffalo Maven, and also a full-time sports talk show radio host in the mornings on 1270 The Fan. Jerry don't do a lot of interviews, so I really appreciate his time. I appreciate his candor, his honesty. Love that guy. One of the greatest interviews I've ever done personally. And he's one of the best sports columnists that have ever been in the Buffalo area. So I really appreciate having him on. Thanks as always to Tone Pucks for coming on, talking some Buffalo Bills, laying out some season predictions. That was a lot of fun. Looking forward to the season starting on Sunday. I'm also looking forward to you going on iTunes and subscribing to this podcast. It's quick. It's easy. It's free. You just hit that subscribe button and bam, new episodes automatically get sent right to your phone or to your laptop. That's it. Literally. Play them. Delete them afterwards so that it doesn't clog up all the storage on your phone. If you don't have iTunes, you can also subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are heard. Do not forget to follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. Have yourself a nice, safe week. We'll see you again on Friday. Have a good one. I'm out.